The following contains adult language and content. Discretion is advised. A trip to the hospital can be an anxious and stressful experience. We're led into a tiny examination room, change into an oversized gown, and then sit on a table with white paper that crinkles with every movement. It's where we're at our most vulnerable, and we want to feel better. Never does it cross our mind that the people at that hospital might be harming us just to ring up our medical bill. But that's exactly what was happening at Chicago's Edgewater Hospital. It was the dirty little secret that hospital employees learned on the morning of December 6th, 2001. I remember that day like it was yesterday. My sister called and said, the news trucks are here. It's not good. I go up to the office and there's all my co-workers just kind of sitting around in a daze. There were people crying. There were people hugging. Some really angry. And I'm like, oh boy, what happened? And they told us that they were going to close the hospital. There were some reports of people being indicted. We heard that they were promising people lunch, and then they would get them here and do tests on them at Edgewater, do procedures on people that didn't need them. It was bad. They destroy people's life. My supervisor was like, remember how you were getting such pushback from Dr. Cabrera? He's one of the ones being indicted. Four physicians brought the goddamn hospital down to the ground. Most people were just told, this is your last check. Goodbye. If any one of these four guys were there, they were going to be killed, I'm telling you. I felt like my heart was torn out of my chest. I almost immediately went to unemployment, and all of Edgewater was there. You couldn't turn around without seeing a person from Edgewater coming to get their unemployment benefits. It pains me that the only thing you see in the newspaper or in Google, Edgewater Hospital, greedy hospital. That's not true whatsoever. The legacy of the once premier Edgewater Hospital remains tied to the fraud scheme that went on during its final years, when the hospital did just about anything to fill up its beds. Dr. Cabrera and other crooked doctors then performed medically unnecessary procedures on these patients. Management didn't just look the other way. They were in on it. Patients died, doctors went to jail, and the hospital closed. But the buildings, they just sat there and rotted for well over a decade. I've been in healthcare 47 years. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. Healthcare veteran Michael Levin witnessed Edgewater's transformation firsthand. Edgewater is a lesson in contrasts. This was a brilliant hospital, and then it did a 180. Edgewater Hospital went from being the best of the best. There's nothing that compares with my experience at Edgewater. To the worst of the worst. We weren't cured for. We went through a lot here. That was just a nightmare. One doctor there, he would completely ignore everything that we would recommend and do what he wanted, which was keeping the people sicker and in the hospital. And I had a doctor tell me, you got to learn how to make money off these people. To me, that was just like, what the hell is wrong with you, you know? The only thing that might be more surprising to me about Edgewater was the speed with which it collapsed. So how did this happen? Who let it happen? And could it ever happen again? We are your hosts, Todd Gantz. And I'm Stephanie Young, and we'll introduce you to former employees, patients, FBI agents, journalists, 
and even some lawyers who will share their stories of what went on there. People think because you worked at Edgewater, you know what was going on, but you really did not. It's a story that should have been front page news, but somehow wasn't. I wish I knew the absolute truth of what happened now. We will warn you, the story is sometimes graphic and complicated. Even the FBI started investigating it for one thing, but uncovered far more serious crimes. We're not only going to cover what led to the hospital closing, but well beyond that, because the story didn't end there. The former owner who ran it into the ground did just about anything to avoid the law, including fleeing the country. Left behind were nine giant hospital buildings filled with medical records, equipment, and supplies right in the middle of a residential neighborhood in Chicago. The whole thing is sad because I knew it when it was a thriving, functioning hospital. I've gone through different stages of grief. First sadness, and then the anger after seeing it just sitting empty year after year after year. We were good employees who cared for each other, and a few bad apples took this place down. This podcast shares the true crimes that happened inside those walls at Edgewater Hospital that caused it to morph into a butcher shop that defrauded the government and insurance companies. There will be tears from those walls that the only remembrance that they have from that hospital is the greed of a few and not the good of so many. That, uh, well, excuse me. The Cuban-born Dr. Rogelio Manulet always dreamed of becoming an American citizen. I left Cuba in uh, difficult conditions, and I love the United States with all my heart. He came to the States with one goal in mind. I always wanted to go to the United States to practice medicine. Once settling in Chicago, Dr. Manulet went to work at Edgewater Hospital. When I went to Edgewater Hospital, I was 24 years old. I was a little kid. <laughs> the first job that I had was as a surgical assistant until I passed all my boards, etc., etc. The problem was he didn't speak English. So he learned by watching TV shows like Sesame Street and The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And at the beginning, I didn't understand the jokes and that kind of stuff, but I kept trying, I kept trying until one day, my wife and I started laughing. And I said, now we got it. He'd always wanted to be a doctor and Edgewater was really his very first home coming to this country. That's Dr. Manulet's son. My dad being someone who's moved from Cuba to Panama, to Spain, to a bunch of different places in Chicago. The one place that stayed stable was Edgewater Hospital. Edgewater Hospital became Dr. Manulet's second home in Chicago. I still have good memories about that hospital. He rose from surgical assistant to president of the medical staff, and now, 20 years later, he still gushes about the place. I was able to work in a beautiful environment. I learned how to be a good physician for my patients. He gave me the American dream. He's retired now, but always dreamed of returning to Edgewater Hospital to see the next generation of doctors and nurses. My dream was every time that I come back to Chicago, stop by Edgewater Hospital, see the new physicians, walk around, talk to people. Oh, you are so-and-so. Wow. That was my dream. And it didn't happen.
His dream never came true because the fraud scheme happening at the hospital led to its bankruptcy. Another Cuban refugee named Dr. Andrew Cubria was a big part of that scheme. He was a very uh, troubled person. When he came to Edgewater Hospital, he was a good physician, board certified in cardiology, board certified in internal medicine, but he became greedy. And when he became greedy, I said, this is it, Andy, no more. You go your way, I go my way. Whether it was greed or ghosts from Dr. Cubria's past, something changed. Dr. Andrew Cubria, uh, he killed two patients, literally. We'll talk more about Dr. Cubria in later episodes. Edgewater Hospital was sort of a melting pot. Not only did it staff hundreds of people from the diverse residential neighborhood, but the hospital imported nurses from England, Scotland, and the Philippines and built dormitories for them to live on the campus. The hospital was the brainchild of its co-founder, a surgeon named Dr. Maurice Maisel. Dr. Maisel was in love with that hospital. The ageless Dr. Maisel stood at the hospital's groundbreaking ceremony in 1928 and continued to lead it for over a half century. The hospital was like one of his children. Jim Ginter is Dr. Maisel's grandson. He was a brilliant doctor, very wise businessman, very dedicated to his practice and to this thing that he created. Maisel had his work cut out for him. Just after it opened, he had to steer this half-million-dollar investment through the Great Depression, which crippled the U.S. economy for a decade. If Maisel knew one of his patients was out of work, he made sure they didn't receive a bill. His granddaughter, Georgette, said this is what made him so loved by his patients. Patients come first. That was my grandfather's credo. Maisel wanted the hospital to look and operate like a five-star hotel. When you stepped inside the marble-lined entrance, a receptionist greeted you. You wanted to portray some elegance. You wanted to feel like you were coming in to be pampered and be taken care of. Someone helped you in with your bag. Someone rode the elevator up with you and took you to your room. It's very much like a hotel. Our job was to sit at the front reception desk. When a patient would get admitted, the admitting clerk would hit a bell, and we would carry their bags up to the room, make sure they got settled in okay. Much like hotels had bellhops, Maisel's hospital employed page boys, like Alan McGarrity, who still remembers his uniform. It was a double-breasted blazer-type uniform, gray in color. The slacks were black. It had a gray stripe down each side, like how tuxedos have the uh, striped in satin. And, of course, the white gloves. And if the gloves got dirty, we had to go change them and get nice, clean white gloves. One look at the handsome Dr. Maisel, and you'd think he was a movie star. And he dressed like a movie star. He had like the Errol Flynn kind of mustache, like a pencil mustache. That's Leonard Schneider, who worked with Maisel. He was very handsome, and he, he walked around like he was king of the castle. Not only that, Maisel was the doctor to the stars. There were several celebrities, and he was their physician. They would fly into Chicago to get treated by him. He knew and treated many of the old-school Hollywood A-listers, like Bing Crosby and Jimmy Stewart. We also heard rumors that Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack frequented the hospital just to dry out. The Rat Pack and other celebrities 
stayed in private suites tucked within the hospital. The rooms were very big. That's Patty Vaccarella. They had actual dining tables in them. They had two phones in there. These massive rooms contained all the amenities of a luxury hotel, including a bar, of course. They would get special sterling silver tea service. They would have these ornate teapots and special place settings on there, and these were really heavy. And I remember carrying some of these trays thinking, oh my God, I'm going to drop this thing. At dinnertime, a tray girl would stroll the hallways and play a xylophone to announce your meal was on its way. That was a tradition. That was right when I first started there. Mary Booker still remembers that tune. Do, 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 doom, doom. You know, it was a privilege to be the one to walk down the hall and let everybody know supper's coming. Maisel was a perfectionist, and sometimes that rubbed people the wrong way. This man used to come at 3 o'clock in the morning to make rounds. And if he caught you not doing your job, you were in deep trouble. He was a scary dude. That's Karen McCarl. He had a fly-off-the-handle kind of thing. You know, he did have bad temper, and he'd fire people on the spot and stuff like that. He would spot check on his employees just to make sure they were doing what they were supposed to. Donna Jarvis still remembers one of Maisel's spot checks. Every morning he would come around with his entourage and they would start on the top floor and make their way down. And he came around and he looked for things that were wrong. And in each room you had the curtain that you could pull. Well, God forbid, in one of the corners on the curtain, this was off of the hook. Now, you would not have seen this if you were standing there looking at it. And he come up to the desk, and he always called us honey. He says, honey, look at that curtain up there. And I said, well, what's wrong with it? He says, off the hook. And I'm busy on the phone with the doctor. And I looked at him, and I said, are you for real? I'm not stopping in the middle of CPR to hang a curtain rod. He just turned around, started laughing, and walked out. One time a guy delivering flowers wanted to go up to the floor and he went to the elevator for delivery, but it wasn't the one for delivering flowers. And I saw Maisel just push him down because he wouldn't get off the elevator and go on the right elevator. And Maisel had to be like way in his 70s or older at the time. He was He's not a young guy. I know at times people thought he was a tyrant, but you had to be a tyrant right back to him. And he loved you for it. <laughs> just the way he stood and moved, he was a classy guy. I'm glad I never got chewed up by him. Roger Eamon started at Edgewater in 1977 and quickly became concerned by the number of people Maisel fired. He fired two directors of nursing, a couple of HR directors, and so I'm thinking I'd better line up another job. So I slipped my resignation letter under his door. Instead of accepting his resignation, Maisel ordered Roger to call him. He says, Eamon, in my office at 9 a.m. tomorrow, and don't be late. And he hangs up. So I go in, and getting ready to sit down, he reaches under the desk and hits a button, and the door closes behind me. I said, I'm really in trouble now. I'm really in trouble. So he says to me, um, I'm not letting you leave here. Roger agreed to stay, but he would later become embroiled in the scandal that would lead to the hospital's demise. It's the chilling story of a cemetery and a clown. And it all happened where Dr. Maisel is buried. That's disgusting. 
We'll share it in our Cut for Time segment on Patreon. There's a link to Patreon on our website, or you can go directly to patreon.com slash if the walls could talk podcast. During his 50 plus years there, Dr. Maisel turned Edgewater Hospital into the premier medical facility with amenities and equipment like a hyperbaric chamber that rivaled most Chicago hospitals. He built that hospital into one of the largest at that time. Arisha Cardoso worked with Maisel. He started to dedicate the hospital to certain specialties. Among them, his interest was cardiac. It's almost ironic that the gruff and temperamental Maisel specialized in the heart. He developed a form of open-heart surgery and later manufactured a blood clot drug called urocarnase. This drug originated from male urine. Now, exactly what is urokinase and how is it made? Well, urokinase is made from healthy male urine. That's Dr. Maisel on a radio show describing urokinase. It takes 350 gallons of urine and three weeks to process it to make enough to treat one patient. Hmm. Which begs the question, where did he get all that urine? Back in the 50s and 60s, they used to collect the first morning urine from male patients because Dr. Maisel was working on a research project for some kind of a heart drug. When I first got there, it was kind of odd because I would go to the men's washroom and they're collecting urine. So what? It was something Roger Eamon questioned when he started working there. And I found out he had developed this urokinase that blood clots in your heart and stuff and brain, it, it took it away. If you're a guy and you went to the urinal, now it was being collected instead of going down the pipes. So he was really a forerunner in this kind of stuff. You know, even though he was a scary guy at times, he knew his medicine. He ran a tight ship. There's a saying that back in the day, everyone from Chicago's north side was born at Edgewater Hospital. And two of the biggest names to be born there are Hillary Clinton and John Wayne Gacy. Hillary Rodham was born at Chicago's Edgewater Hospital in 1947. In high school, she was voted girl most likely to succeed. And we all know that Hillary went on to marry Bill Clinton and later became first lady, senator, secretary of state, and a two-time presidential candidate. On the other side of the tracks, you'll find John Wayne Gacy Jr. Now, the junior usually gets omitted from his name, but he was born to parents John Sr. and Marion at Edgewater Hospital on St. Patrick's Day, 1942. John was the quintessential middle child who got along with his sisters and mother, but had a more challenging relationship with his father. There was definitely verbal and psychological abuse, and he would always call Gacy stupid, and you'll never amount to anything, you're just a dummy. Author and filmmaker John Borowski is a Gacy expert. He was never good enough. He most likely wanted to overcompensate for everything by doing 300%. So he's overdoing everything, you know, to please his father. Look at when Gacy grew up, you know, basically in the 50s, which was the worst time in America for anyone to be gay. Here he is with these feelings, and what can he do but keep it all bottled up inside him? Fast forward to the 70s when it was still a tough time for gays, and here he is covering up and hiding who he is, just like he did with the bodies. When you look at the psychologists, some of them said that they believed it was AC murdering himself over and over again because of his internalized self-hatred for being gay. Gacy is infamously known for creating Pogo the Clown. Pogo because he was Polish and on the go. While dressed as Pogo, he visited children at local hospitals. Longtime Edgewater employee Karen McCaro shared that one of these hospitals 
was Edgewater. I do remember people telling me that he dressed up as a clown at Edgewater. He used to come and see the sick children. I would say it's entirely possible because he was born there and he performed all around the Chicagoland area as pro clown. Donna Jarvis remembers Gacy turning up as a patient at Edgewater. Yes, he was in room 101. I remember him laying in that bed. He never said much. He was very, very quiet. And, you know, I talked to him, but I had no clue who he was at this time. Just like there to answer your questions, but would not be very conversant. Now, there are even rumors that Gacy actually targeted the young men who worked at Edgewater Hospital. People that were our page boys, they were all these high school kids, you know, uh, that were like the bellhops, were actually murdered by him. Alan McGarrity was a page boy. I'd be real surprised if Gacy was targeting page boys unless they happened to go to work for him with his construction company. Well, I can confirm that he was a patient in the coronary care unit. I don't remember what dates, but he was in room 101. Known as the killer clown, John Wayne Gacy went on to become one of the more prolific serial killers of the 20th century. When you think about it, it's because of Gacy that people are afraid of clowns. He was later sentenced to death after being convicted of at least 33 murders. 29 on his property or in the river, but there may be one more. With his last words, kiss my ass, Gacy was executed by lethal injection in 1994. He was a finely tuned murdering predator who learned from every step of mistake along the way. And all these years later, why are we still fascinated by the John Wayne Gacy story? He was the best of the best in his field. He ran an entire business out of his jail cell at Menard on death row. He would paint these paintings. He would write to people. People would come and visit him. The guards would charge people to take a Polaroid picture. He even had a 900 number that people could call and listen to him answering his own questions about why he was innocent. While it's unconfirmed that Gacy murdered a page boy or performed as a clown for children there, his being born there will forever connect him to Edgewater Hospital's tangled history. Dr. Maisel's devoted hard work and leadership was the driving force behind the hospital's success. But he seemed to have one fatal flaw. As we approach the 80s, Healthcare started to change. That's Arisha Cardoso. He was approached to merge. He was absolutely opposed to that. And when discussions came up about, Dr. Maisel, you know, you're elderly. What are you doing to secure the further growth and sustainability of this hospital? His remark was, I don't care what happens when I'm gone. I'm here right now. Fatal mistake, fatal mistake. Just a few days after his 85th birthday, Dr. Maisel developed an intestinal obstruction and underwent surgery. After his stitches ruptured, he developed an infection and later died. Perhaps his age contributed to complications from that surgery and he really never recovered from it. Most of the hospital was very upset. They drove the the hearse around the hospital three times before going on to Rose Hill Cemetery. A lot of employees went out of the hospital, you know, to say their last goodbye to Dr. Maisel, and people were crying. The sidewalk around the hospital was lined with people. There were a couple hundred people standing out front of the hospital. 
everybody wanted to be out there just to say their goodbye. I remember that day being cold and sort of gray, but um, a lot of people, it didn't matter, they stood out there and they, you know, want, wanted to, to see him go around the hospital one last time. It was very sad. I know we were. He was a very good man. I owe everything that I am to that hospital, starting from Dr. Maisel and the people that work over there. With the passing of the only leader the hospital ever had, things quickly fell apart. The lack of succession after Maisel, that was the beginning of the end of the hospital. We heard from John Borowski in this episode. He's written a book and even has a film about Gacy in the works. Gacy learned that a miniature golf course was closing, and he arranged to have that whole miniature golf course transported to the prison. I was there last summer. The miniature golf course is still at that prison. John will share how Gacy managed to get that miniature golf course built in prison and our full interview with him on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash if the walls could talk podcast after a half century of stability at edgewater hospital the 1980s brought enormous challenges it was without its only leader dr mazel who helped build it from the ground up succeeding him was his widow harriet harriet was a former circus performer famous for doing somersaults and dance moves while riding a horse at 15 she was an expert at the loop around while blindfolded and bound in a gunny sack on a galloping horse. People would say she was a circus performer. What does she know about healthcare or managing a uh, hospital? That's Arisha Cardoso. She was not the right person. She wasn't a business person, but had been around the hospital for many, many years. Jim Ginter is Dr. Maisel's grandson. I don't think it was her chosen path of what she hoped to do, but she found herself in the position and did her very best. It proved to be a struggle for her and numerous other community hospitals as sweeping changes in healthcare turned the industry upside down. Healthcare veteran Michael Levin explains. Back in those days, the model of, you know, Blue Cross will pay for everything and it'll last forever. Well, of course, that changed. You see, there was a concept of prospective reimbursement that says, okay, for disease X and patient Y and zip code Z, we'll pay you $4,500 for this gallbladder surgery. Do it for less and you make money. If it costs you more, it's on you. The financial risk shifted to hospitals and doctors. This was a huge disruptor, huge disruptor. When that changed, it became get them in, get them well, get them out. What was once the loaves and the fishes, you know, this is going to go on forever. That just died. This was now hardcore business. The world completely changed and hospitals in Chicago closed. As Michael said, medicine became a hardcore business. If hospitals could get costs down, they made money. If they didn't, they lost money. And Edgewater wasn't making money. The hospital tried to attract younger patients and developed a birthing center where expectant mothers could remain in the same room before, during, and after labor. An expectant mother could come in and feel like she was being pampered and giving birth in this beautiful room. Each room was decorated with fancy furniture and chandeliers, and by today's standards, it's common. But back in the 80s, it was laughed at. They were ahead of their time. It wasn't attracting new patients, let's put it that way. The hospital's attempt to reinvent itself had failed, and its once sterling reputation quickly faded. 
as Denine Sherman remembers. The whole experience there just kind of seemed real lackadaisical in their attitude. Like they didn't even want to deal with patients. Denine was just 15 when her father got sick and ended up at Edgewater. This doctor pulled me into the treatment room. Dark, dank, that just reeks of 1930s, 1940s. And he just matter-of-factly said, all right, look, your dad is in a vegetative space. He's not going to wake up. There's no sign of life there. You're going to have to make arrangements to have him put into a facility. She hasn't forgotten how she was treated. I'm a 15-year-old kid trying to process all of this. And I'm like, okay. So a little while later, this social worker comes in. And it was just real straightforward, curt, no consideration for what you're telling this 15-year-old high school kid. Just a real I don't care attitude. And it just seemed like everybody there had that. The experience of walking into Edgewater was so horrible that it was the one thing that I really tried to put out of my mind. Patients like Larry Marks also noticed the change at the hospital. Every time I walked down the hall, I would look at the floor. I wouldn't look into the rooms. They were all dreary. They were all sort of yellow. It looked like it was out of a movie. There was a a man that saw me and he said, please stop, sir, please stop. He said, I'm in such pain. Would you get the nurse? I said, of course. And I went back to the nurse's station and I told her and she said, oh, you know, he never stopped complaining. He'll be just fine. And I thought, oh my God. It was like this hospital soul had died, but the body hadn't yet given it up. That's what it felt like to go in there. It was obvious the place was in disarray. Kevin Feeney was Edgewater's marketing director. But it was still a functioning hospital. One of Kevin's earliest memories was a trip to the hospital's warehouse. You know, it was jammed full of stuff, and they had... Uh, You know, like presentation folders, you know, glossy file folders, essentially. Yeah, we got a good deal on these. Yeah, but why did you buy 200,000 of them? Seriously, did you need pallet loads of them? No wonder the place went broke. Kind of strange management, you know? It didn't help when money started to disappear. There were a lot of talk about embezzlement. That's Arisha Cardoso. Dr. Mazel left the hospital cash rich. There were substantial millions of dollars. That was all gone within a matter of a year or two. I was part of a team that investigated some fraud that had taken place. Jim Ginter is Dr. Maisel's grandson. I I just want to leave it as, yes, we uncovered quite a large operation for the time. It was quite the shock. With several community hospitals closing throughout Chicago, Edgewater executives warned that they could be next. They started closing a lot of the units in the hospital, and I was laid off twice. They said that without a buyer or merger, the hospital had six months to live. That's when Bobby Matt saw hundreds of her colleagues lose their jobs. We went from 1,600 employees down to 900 employees in a weekend, and then down to 600. In the mid-80s, the hospital racked up over $25 million in operating losses, and even had to get a loan to make payroll. A member of the hospital's board of directors said the hospital was dying on the vine, and without a buyer, they would close. It was at one time a very respected and fine hospital, and it was sad to hear that. With time and money running out, the Edgewater community prayed for a miracle. 
But then, a white knight rode into town. A businessman named Peter Rogan, who was working as a consultant to the hospital at the time, put in an offer. There was a choice of close the hospital and have 700 to 800 people lose their job or allow this investor to come in and assume the debt, take over the business, and make a go at it. For the bargain price of $1 million, Edgewater Hospital's board of directors agreed to sell to Peter Rogan. I think it was the right thing to do. It would have been harder on the community to see that many people lose their job. That sale would prove fatal for Edgewater Hospital and its legacy. I'm trying to put this most delicately. There were some issues that were uncovered and... What was really going on within the walls of Edgewater would shock the entire community. I don't know if his intention was to run it to the ground and get as much money out of it as he could and leave, or if he really believed he was going to turn it into a viable business and keep it running. Peter Rogan got into the business of Edgewater Hospital. From then on, that was just greed. And that was the demise of the hospital. Greed. Peter Rogan wound up saving Edgewater Hospital in the worst possible way. He can rot in hell. Next time on If the Walls Could Talk. There's some people there putting in the hospital that aren't sick that have never been sick. The second floor was the dirty little secret that no one was supposed to talk about. You'd get eight people at one time that would come in. It's like, where are all these people coming from? I thought, this is weird. I have no idea how the FBI got tipped off, but I'm glad they did. I don't think I'll ever forget that interview with Dr. Manulette because it was the first time in our interviews where someone broke down and cried, but it certainly wasn't the last. I remember how we both looked at each other and realized just how much this hospital meant to so many people. This abandoned hospital at the end of our street suddenly became a little more personal. So if you're a Patreon subscriber, you'll have access to bonus content and a segment we call Second Opinion. That's where Stephanie and I talk candidly about the stories within the stories from each episode. And in this week's Second Opinion episode on Patreon, we'll talk more about Dr. Manulet. We also sit down with John Borowski for more about his John Wayne Gacy film, and then play a round of Fact, Fiction, or Don't Know. We'll also share our Cut for Time segment of the podcast, which involves a clown and some deer at the cemetery where Dr. Maisel is buried. If you're a Patreon subscriber, thank you. If you'd like to become one, just go to patreon.com slash podcast. We posted pictures we referenced in this episode on our website at ifthewallscouldtalkpodcast.com. You'll also find links to our Instagram page and Facebook group there, too. Plus, you can send us your questions for a future Q&A episode. Music in this episode comes from the YouTube Audio Library. Underworld by Mew. Two Moons by Bobby Richards. Just Us League by RKVC. Sharp Senses by Yugona Anakwe. The Six Realms by I Think I Can Help You. Sunrise in Paris by Dan Hennig. Where Mood by Godmo. Honey by Corbin Kites. Stark Goes Dark by The Whole Other. Stranger Danger by Francis Pre. Night Snow by Asher Falero. Tension Pulse by Lynn Music and Suspended in a Dream by Dmitry Balachenko are both used under license through Neosounds. John Borowski's documentary is called John Wayne Gacy, A Clown Can Get Away with Murder. Inside is used with permission from Southern Illinois University. Learn more on our website, ifthewallscouldtalkpodcast.com. This episode was written by Todd Gans. If the Walls Could Talk podcast is produced by Buckletown Productions, LLC. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.